go ahead and missed me with that bullshit. You're listening to America's foggiest podcast, The Pod People. I'm Matisse Van Rossum, puffing on God's fattest clouds. I'm the milkman, Ben Sheets. And I'm Cleveland Mosier, and I'm here to hotbox the grocery store. Let's go. Cleveland risen from the dead after being drowned in the night pool last week. As Lazarus himself. <laughs> exactly. Precisely. You are the vessel of God. Well, I was baptized in the pool of night. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds cool as hell. It wasn't. I gave me a big migraine and I had to go to sleep. No. <laughs> well, uh, that's this... the worst part about night swim. Sorry, I, I got to get this out of the way. I got to get this out of my chest. That's the worst part is I still watch night swim and then I couldn't even get any use out of it, like and, and help turn it into entertainment. Didn't you learn guys. something about baseball though, and what it means to be an all-star? Yeah, eastbound and fucking drowned. Thank you for carrying that on. Last yeah, episode. you're welcome. All right. Uh, what was the question? Was, there, was there one? No. <laughs> Speaking of being foggy. All right. Yeah. Well, we're so, yeah, not really back in full, but this I'm week here. this week is my pick, and I have chosen for us to discuss Frank Darabont's 2007 film The Mist an adaptation of a Stephen King novella, um, and just one of many King adaptations by uh, the boy Frank Darabont, the legend. This was somehow your first time seeing this, Clave. I'm kind of surprised. Yeah. I feel like this movie was was kind of big when it came out. I've, I thought most... I've seen it like a bajillion times. I it love was, this movie. But I, I kind of I slept on a lot of 2000s horror movies. Yeah. Uh, over the past couple of years, it's been... My first for many of these, the shitty Texas Chainsaw, etc., all around the same time. Oh, all yeah. The, the Dimension Weinstein Brothers horror movies. Yeah. The, the Saw films, you know, all those. I didn't really well, this know, one, hop on that train until later. This one is technically one of those, too. Yep. We did yep. see uh, Bob and Harvey's name uh, over the uh, end credits. But um, this one's much better than most of those. I I really, really love this movie. Um, one of my favorite uh, Frank Darabont films. This is one of the most brutal and nihilistic horror movies. Yes. Mean movie. uh, especially of the 2000s, but kind of in general. Yeah. It's just, it's bordering on mean-spirited. Yeah, I, I was very careful, like a second ago, to say to say it's a mean movie and it's supposed to mean spirited. It about is, but I I feel like yeah, there is a, a reason to say mean instead of that, but not yeah. by much. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, yes, it's a it's a very cruel and nihilistic film um, that uh, punishes its characters horrifically, um, but. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a sucker for, for punishment and, uh, I always really enjoy this movie, um, though it is a, a sort of, uh, bad times film. Yeah, um, well, I mean, like, while it is very much a bad time, it's also one of the better Stephen King adaptations. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, I think Darabon, you know, historically is a great person to adapt Stephen King, like, stuff like The Green Mile or Shawshank. Yeah, are you know bona fide classics and like he sort of I feel like he's sort of to Stephen King what Stuart Gordon and Brian Usna are to Lovecraft. Yeah, I would agree. I think you know Darabont does such a great job of capturing the essence of the story and like maintaining the structure. 
while leaving of, all of the Stephen King bullshit behind. And kind of streamlining them into, you know, two-hour movies. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's a really tricky skill that a lot of people fail at. Have either of y'all read The Meast? I have um, not. No. Way back in like ninth grade, I think I barely remember it. We can table it now, but towards the end, I'd love to hear any key differences. The only stuff. real difference I remember is the end, because I don't remember it well. But well, we can't. We don't want to talk about yeah. the end just hey. yet. We have to. We have to get up to that. Um, Put that on the back burner. Yeah. So for folks who have not seen this movie, um, like I said, came out in 2007. Um, it stars Thomas Jane uh, and... Just... Highlander. No, no, sir. You are thinking of Belgian heartthrob Christopher Lambert. I, he, they look so similar. Kind of, They both yes. have really strong jawlines uh, and kind of focused eyes. Yes, Thomas Jane did, uh, among many, many other roles. Oh, yeah. He's a very prolific actor, but he was the OG Punisher um, back in the, in the mid 2000s thousands um right yeah he's been he's been in a ton of stuff he's in um i think he has like a bit part in boogie nights he's in uh face off he's one of the only good things about that uh that amazon adaptation of the expanse he's the detective in that first season oh, yeah i think yeah one of the biggest he really isn't highlighted. uh highlights of this movie is you know, it is kind of a lower-budget adaptation, but they get so much value out of their money by casting just uh, who's who of, like, incredible character actors yeah. or, like, minor stars. And I think Thomas Jane is a great example of that. You know, while he probably had a little more clout in the 2000s when this came out, he's still not, like, an A... He wasn't, like, an A-list celebrity no. by any means. And that's kind of what I appreciate about frank darabon as a filmmaker is i feel like he tends to to go for those kinds of castings um you know we were talking about he did like the first at least the first season maybe the first two seasons of the walking dead and there's some actor crossover in this as well like laurie holden is in this melissa mcbride has a bit part um so you see some like familiar Frank Darabont faces in here. But yeah, like I, I wanted to pull up the IMDB and just go through like the list of noteworthy character actors who make up this ensemble. Like you mentioned we got Thomas Jane, um, Marcia Gay Harden, Laurie Holden, I mentioned already, Andre Brower, who just died very recently, um, Toby Jones, who's a personal favorite of mine, uh, William Sadler, Jeffrey DeMunn. Um, let me see, who else am I missing? Uh, Sam Witwer, Starkiller from the Force Unleashed games. Um, fucking, who else we got? Uh, like I said, Melissa McBride. These names might not mean anything to you, but I guarantee if you saw the vast majority of these people, you'd be like, oh, it's that guy. The one that really got me was Sam Witwer. Uh, like, throughout the film, like, okay, I've seen this guy in a million things. I know that, but what is it I really, what is it? Like, what, what, what is it that he, he's really stirring my memory from? And it wasn't until, like, he picked up a knife and held it backwards. And it just clicked in my head. I was like, oh, Star, Star Killer. Killer. Like, oh, yeah, he's the guy who holds the lightsaber backwards. All oh, right. Like, and, you know, it wasn't until that moment <laughs> he clicked for me. Like, because he, he does. He, it's in the pharmacy. He picks up that knife and he holds mm-hmm. it backhand for no reason. 
And it, yeah, I, I don't know when those games came out, but uh, I, guess um, I think it was after this, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, but not much. I, I, I feel like the first one of those games came out in like 2008, 2009. Uh-huh. Um, so right around... The Wii. I, I haven't seen Sam Witwer in anything in a long time, but I feel like he used to... He's he's one of those guys like Thomas Jane. He used to just kind of pop up all over the place in like yeah. the, the mid-2000s. He's, he's got one of those really exaggerated faces. Mm-hmm. All his features are really prominent. But, uh, yeah, he was good. I think that's the quality of a good character actor is kind of weird, kind of weird looking, but Mm -hmm. recognizable. Memorable face. Memorable face. Yeah, exactly. It's AKA, Hey, it's that guy, (laughs) you know, even if you might not be able to place exactly what you know him from, you know, you've seen him somewhere. And this movie is just full of those people. Great ensemble cast that I feel like does a really good job of giving all of the characters just the right amount of needed development for their role in the film that makes them feel believable and real and human without struggling to balance it all. Yeah, you know, and the other thing about getting a lot of character actors with memorable faces is, like, they feel like real people that would be at a grocery store. Yeah. It doesn't feel like you have these super sexy Hollywood actors, you know, just going through the aisles it's weird looking people it's just normal it's normal people yeah um so the film starts uh with uh thomas jane david drayton um he's a uh he's fucking uh drew struzan yeah he's he's drew Drew struzan those are it's it's his his art studio is full of actual drew struzan pieces yeah, it has it has just the the straight up the thing uh, poster mm-hmm. hanging in there. He's he's yeah he's a uh, and he's he's like painting a Clint Eastwood. He what he's actually doing is he's painting the gunslinger from the Dark Tower series. Yeah, that's Stephen why the King. door is behind. Yeah, the door behind oh. him. Yeah, it, that's a that's a little Stephen King uh, right. nod right there. Yeah, so yeah. he's he's a he's an artist who paints movie posters, um, and yeah, like you said, we see him painting this like cool like dark cowboy which again anybody who's read uh the dark tower series will recognize immediately yeah and i mean like it's clear that his character is like the self-insert character for you know both stephen king and by proxy frank darabont Darabont. Mm -hmm. because you know he's an artist who kind of shows heroism and there there are interesting takes on like how the other characters view artist quote-unquote and by proxy how you know darabond and stephen king view other people view artists i wouldn't know anything about that (laughs) not at all yeah but um yeah as he's as he's painting in this like opening shot uh, a storm whips up and uh uh, a tree comes crashing through the window of his studio, um, and we sort of cut to the next day, seeing the aftermath of this huge storm that has blown up from across the lake in this, you know, this lovely little uh, rural, uh, supposed to be Maine community, um, as as it is Stephen King. Um, definitely not shot in Maine. Do y'all has there any guesses where they shot this? Well, there's a couple of clues. There's a street sign that says Portland. Portland, Maine. Portland, Maine. Yeah. Right. Okay. Oh, right. It's one of the largest cities in Maine. Yeah, I, I feel know. like this is one of those Canada shoots, Toronto or Vancouver. No. No. Louisiana. 
Louisiana. Um, hmm. The honestly, the the biggest clue for that for me, the last time I was watching this, is uh, when uh, he's fighting with uh, Andre Brower later in the store. Um, he shoves Andre Brower up against a shelf that's full of Zaps potato chips. Oh yeah, and oh, in two thousand yeah, in two thousand and seven, you could not coast. get Zaps chips like outside yeah. of the Gulf Coast. It wasn't until a couple years. Uh, up here in North Carolina, you couldn't get mm-hmm. them either. Um, I remember yeah. they used to be. Really, I could only get them whenever I went back home to visit. Yep. And then finally, they started putting them in stores. They've up been. Here. They've been. God. Yeah, they've been branching out. But yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's the ultimate clue that this was uh, this was shot somewhere in uh, in on the Gulf Coast, and it is Louisiana. Yeah, and I mean, you can you can see like with the foliage and stuff like on the lake. There's like these mangrove trees and shit. Like that's not fucking Maine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they they uh, composite in some mountains in the background. To <laughs> yeah, I will say some of the the compositing in this movie works better than others. Like yeah. One of the first shots we get is like the family looking out the window it's like heavily raining mm-hmm. and stuff and it's clear that it's like composited in yeah, there's some kind of charming about that shot I, I did like it it looks a little janky though. the digital oh, it the, does but it's yeah it's charming. the digital we'll, we'll get to this more but the digital effects in this movie are kind of a mixed bag yeah um, aged for sure Aged for sure, but aged better than some of the other films that came out around that time. Yeah, yeah and we can talk about it further, you know, once we really get into the meat of, like, the, the FX work. But, like, I think it uh, it works so well in this movie because it's mixed in with practicals at times. Yes, as always, CG that is enhancing practical effects always going to be better than just straight-up CG. Um, anyway... So, uh, yeah, we, we see the aftermath of this big storm, um, Andre Brower's his neighbor, who is, you know, sort of big hotshot lawyer who's driven up from New York City. He's got his, you know, lake house in rural Maine, where he vacations. There's some tension between the two of them. We find out later that Andre Brower had, like, tried to sue him for something previously, but they sort of commiserate over uh the damage from the storm you know one tree fell on thomas jane's boathouse another tree fell on andre brower's car he's like hey can are you going into town to get supplies can i catch a ride um so he goes in with andre brower and his young son and go to uh the local uh grocery store which is i think is straight up just called food house which (laughs) which is one of the most lazily smart shop as smart (laughs) one of the most lazily named but also like feels realistic for like a small town grocery store we have next to our like you know like local us food lion yeah we had the food lion um win dixie big lots yeah you know yeah, Piggly, really. Piggly Wiggly. Piggly, that's actually kind of a creative name, though. I, I like Piggly Wiggly. I stand by it. The store is popping. Everybody is in town because the whole town is without power. So everyone's there stocking up on supplies. Do a really nice little sort of natural introduction to all of these characters that we're going to get to know better throughout the course of the film. And um, suddenly there is a uh, a, a siren 
sort of an air raid siren and uh one of them dang ding dang silent hill sirens yeah yeah well i will say like you briefly brushed over it quickly how it like introduces all of these characters i think that's one of the more impressive parts of the movie i agree it's like this is a big ensemble there are a lot of characters with their own you know thoughts and motivations and kind of uh behaviors and like the movie really smartly manages it's organic yeah it's engaging it's fun and i think so much of that comes down to the dialogue personally yeah i think i think the dialogue fucking rocks it's very 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 tightly written Mm -hmm. film frank darabont is a good writer yeah i loved Um, uh there's one bit early on uh it's probably one of my favorite lines is uh he's he's walking out of his house after the storm with the kind of tatters of his uh of his painting that he was working Mm -hmm. on and uh, the wife asked him, like, oh, well, you know, are you going to be able to get it done in time or whatever? And it's like, I'll probably, you know, message the studio and, and see. But, I mean, these days, you know, they can whip it up in two minutes. It's just two big heads in Photoshop. That's most movie posters these days. It's true. It's sad. See, but- the, the <laughs> funny thing is, is over the years, they've just added more big heads to the movie posters. It's not just two big heads anymore. Well, it's funny, though, because also, like, Drew Struzan didn't do it in Photoshop. He did kind of start that trend. Man, uh, good movie posters are, I feel like, are almost, a, for a little tangent, are almost like a lost art these days. I Every agree. goddamn movie that comes out has a just atrocious poster. It's, it really has gotten worse and worse. Like, folks just care less. It is. Worse. It's like they're all, they're, like, like I said, I was kind of joking, but not really, that it's just they're continuing to add more big heads, where it's like every fucking movie now that has more than like two or three characters the posters are all the same there's one big head in the middle surrounded by all of the heads of the ancillary characters fucking marvel did it with the goddamn avengers movies dune as much as i love that first dune the fucking poster is just god awful yeah, it's really bad and it's just I like, that, like <sighs> i feel like some of that is selection bias. Posters have always been mostly bad with some good sprinkled in. However, I guess that's true. We remember, we remember the good ones. Yeah. yeah. However, also the use, the utility of posters is has reduced as well. It's really thumbnails is what they need now. I don't Usually know. How with with sites like Letterboxd where like browsing movies is based on, you know, viewing their posters, basically, right. first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it still plays a Well, I, I certainly part. think that they're still yeah. important, yeah. you know? I mean, I mean, that's still how you see... That's still how you see them when you're browsing streaming, right? Is like, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's smaller. You're right, it is kind of a thumbnail, but it's like, it is, you know, the full poster. Yeah. Except for fucking things like Netflix, where they'll just take, like, a random still from the movie and then slap the title over it. Like, I that's the... It. That's so fucking weird that they do it that sucks, shit. Yeah, it's so it lame. Sucks. I will say, like... There are still plenty of good posters coming out for movies every once in a while. I think even, like, Night Swim has a really good poster, for example, from last week. Yeah. It's just kind of very minimalistic. A woman uh, swimming in the middle of a pool, long shot from above. Um, Very minimalistic. Yeah. You know, I think minimalism Boring, even. Uh, Well... I disagree. I, I think I think good minimalism. It depends. There's some there are some movie posters that 
that uh, I, I think book covers are a great example of that where we're like, like doing like over minimalism for stuff where it's just like boring. It's a new yeah. fucking trend. Yeah, man. Get it, get it out of here. Let's go back to fully illustrated 80s book covers. All right. We're getting lost in the sauce here. Uh, it's a good sauce. We got to. Yeah. Well, we gotta... I will say the Mist's cover, its poster. Mm hmm incredible iconic yeah anyway yeah so we're starting to set up um all of these characters um we're just sort of like getting a little glimpse but you know you can kind of gather what you need to know about how the characters are sort of how their personalities are yeah and since it's a small town like everyone kind of knows each other yeah at the same time it's kind of a a tourist spot, you know, passing through. There's a so there's, there's certainly a, a divide between the locals and the out of towners. That's mm-hmm. kind of exemplified by like the the conflict between um, Thomas Jane and Andre Brower. Um, but anyway, as you know, as as we're sort of being introduced to all these characters, um, we hear this air raid siren, and we see uh, sort of like an an older man running towards the uh the the grocery store shouting he's he's got a bloody nose and he's being followed by this just massive wall of mist as he gets into the store screaming there's something in the mist it took john lee or whoever you know lock the doors lock the doors as the mist sort of just uh sweeps over and covers the the grocery store it comes in so fast uh there's you know, we have a shot of it coming and rolling up over a building, and that looks pretty great. Um, but we don't ever get, like, a big shot of it, you know? Like, there is earlier on with the mountains, but, like, when it, when it rolls in there, it's just, like, suddenly we turn a corner. Boom. It's you get the You get the, the wide shot of, like, overhead of the parking lot of the grocery store as mm-hmm. it's sweeping in. Like, you yeah, kind of get a sense like... of its scale. It's, pre- it's like, it's... It's a huge cloud. Yeah, like, oh, there's, it's enough, and it's good. It's just that I, I think... In the, in the language of cinema, like a lot of movies would have got done like a, a slightly further out shot of the town, seeing the whole the mist roll in or whatever. But it keeps it isolated to the store, which yeah, is yeah. And I kind yeah. of I kind of prefer that because one of the great parts of limiting like the scope to the grocery store mm. is for the majority of the movie you don't really know how far the mist has spread. Yes, maybe it know. isn't the whole town. That's a good point. No, I'm with it. Yeah. Well, that's something they conjecture about, too, right? They're like, is it, it could be the whole town, it could be the whole eastern seaboard, Thomas Jane's like, it could even be the whole fucking world for all we know, right? So I I like that they keep it small scale. This is, I mean, I tend to be a fan of of single location films in general. Um, I think they're kind of the best format for these, like, big ensemble casts. Because it's easy to keep track of all your characters when you're not having to constantly jump around between different locations. But anyway, yeah, as as they're locking up, one guy in the store is like, "Fuck that! I'm getting to I'm getting to my car." And we see him run out to his car, sort of like right as the mist reaches them, and they hear his screams <laughs> from inside the mist, and they're like, "Oh my god, what?" Yeah. Well, what right before to? that, there was the guy who ran in from the mist. Talking about the there's something right, in the mist. yeah. The there's dude. there's something there's something in the mist, yeah. and then we see the guy run out to his car and hear his screams, but don't see what happened to him. It's like, oh, oh my God. there is something in the mist. Yeah, I, I I really like the buildup of shit being fucked in this yes. movie, so to speak. Um, Excellent ex- escalation. Yeah, yeah. It's constant. 
Um, because we don't actually see any creatures until maybe 45 minutes in-ish. Uh, the tentacles, I would say, count. I mean, the tentacles definitely count, but even so, that's at least 30, if not more, minutes into the movie. Yeah, 30 to um, 40. And the tentacle scene is horrifying. <laughs> yeah. I think that those are some of the the worst age digital effects yes, in the movie. Yes. I will say, like, the one part of it that works is, like, the detail. Yes. That comes out in them. Uh, oh, the design. Yeah. So you're saying? Yeah, well, the design and especially, like, the specific detail of, like, the the spikes yeah. coming out of them. And yeah, the like, barbs. Yeah. Yeah. But like, it's not, it's, I don't think it's how and, they're, it's not the detail of how they're rendered. No, not of how they're the, rendered, the but, them, like, yeah. the detail that's put into them. They're not just a bland hentai tentacle. Like, they are, you know, a bespoke sort of alien yeah. unknown. Well, it's cool because they start, like, almost like it just has a hentai tentacle. They look like a like a squid this creature has come through, and then suddenly spikes come out of the tentacles. Yeah, they sort of open up, and there's it's like cool little little there. mouths on the think, inside of and them. That's, yeah. that's great for for any like any good creature design. Oh, the mouths inside are cool too, but like yeah, for like good creature design, there's usually some sort of yeah, you know, subversive element. And and you know the CG here hasn't aged super well. Like it's pretty smooth, but I, I think it's I think it's composited quite well. For the most part, one of the biggest issues with the CG is, like, the lighting not fitting perfectly. Yes. Um, that and, like, the lack of textural detail. Yes, like, but I do think they do a good job making it feel like these things are in the same space as the characters. Like, the lighting is not perfect, but it feels like the characters are actually reacting off of things in a sense that gives them, I think, a little bit more tangibility despite some of the shortcomings of the actual technology. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? No, it does. It does. Um, a, lo- a lot of these these movies uh, would, were reliant on post. Right. A little too heavy. And uh, this film, you can clearly see that, like the the intent was was laid out from the beginning. And and again, it's Very like it's doing it's placed, probably probably pretty extensively storyboarded and yeah. Like, it, and 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 it's doing a lot of in, of practical enhancement as well. Like d- we haven't really set this scene up, and I think we should double back a little bit, sure. um, just sure. because uh, I I think this scene is is extremely well set up. So, you know, Thomas Jane sort of finds his way into the back of the grocery store and sees that the generator is smoking um, and shuts it off. And he goes and he gets Toby Jones, who's like the assistant manager, and he gets a couple of the sort of like good old boy uh, redneck locals who, you know, they're they're wearing like – they probably mechanics. They're wearing jumpsuits that have their names on them, Jim and Myron. And, you know, take them back there to take a look. It's like, oh, well, there's something that's blocking the exhaust – uh, uh, output, you know, on the roof. And like the bag boy, Norm, this dumb kid is like, well, you raise that, that, uh, garage door up and I'll go out there and I'll clear it. And Thomas Jane is like, well, hang on a second. Like I heard something out there. Like I heard something pressing up against the door. Like I heard something trying to, I don't think like you should 
just go out there. And Toby Jones is like, yeah, the food will keep without the generator for a while. while like, we're fine. And the, the other guys kind of, like, egg him on a little bit. And, you know, so he opens it up. And that's when the tentacles come in and they grab the kid. And to sort of get to what I was talking about with the, the digital effects enhancing the practicals, some of the stuff that I really like in that is like when we first see like little spike mouths come out of the tentacles, like they like rip the kid's kneecap off. And it, that is like the, the blood effect, the squib on his leg is like practical. And the same thing when it like takes a bite out of his chest too. And like, that is like really gruesome and yeah it's brutal yeah and gory yeah, it's and it, it, it's 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 scary like how easily it does it yeah too. you know it just kind of whips at him and then boom you chunk of him is gone. yeah and and like the way that like the camera follows it up after it rips his kneecap off and you see that like the little tendrils inside kind of like trying to figure out what to do with this piece of bone and they just like spit it out it's like i think that's what ben's talking about with like the detail it's like yeah there's they're like the CG looks kind of cheap, but they put a lot of thought into like the way these things are moving, the way they're interacting with the yeah. characters yeah. and That's the things point. in the space. And it's like, okay, yeah, the textures are a little smooth and shiny, but like there, it, it feels like it's quality, like animation work, you know? Yeah. A lot um, of thought. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, this is just sort of like the, the first instance of the movie just being like really fucking mean <laughs> to its characters, you know, killing this, this kid who is, you know, kind of, uh, a little shitbag. But what I, I, God, one of my favorite lines in the movie is after it drags him off and they close the door and they're all just kind of like sitting there in the aftermath and Thomas Jane like looks over at fucking Jim and he's like, hey, man, I'm sorry. I didn't know what you were talking about. Like, he's like, you said you heard something out there. You should have said what you meant. I thought it might just be a big bird or something. And he's like, we didn't twist the kid's leg or anything. And Thomas Jane is like, he's like, yeah, man, he's a fucking kid. He's supposed to be stupid. What's your excuse? Great. Yeah. Great line. And just, like, seeing the way, like, just, like, how that scene starts with all of this, like, macho, like, bravado being slung around, you know, and the way that it ends with, like, like, uh, shit, well, yeah, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> we didn't mean, we didn't mean nothing by it, we didn't think, we didn't think you were talking about there being monsters out there, <laughs> just the way that, just, it it just kind of like deflates all of that that bravado from before is just like it's so good. I like it too because it's not it's not completely condescending towards like just handymen and shit. Like yeah, sure. It's clearly like this one guy because of the two guys, the other one's all right. He helps them and he carries on like making good decisions with them throughout the rest. But Jim, yeah. on the other hand, is the one who keeps turning. I mean, he like he, the, the the fuck up. He ends up on their side later, but he is, like, but, like, Myron is, like, egging them on at the beginning, too. Mm -hmm. Like, he is, he is, he is being, he is being condescending towards, towards Thomas Jane's concerns. And then, just, like, 
another thing that I love about the writing of this movie is that after this, they're like, instead of just running back out into the grocery store and being like, there's monsters out there. They like take the time to be like, okay, we got to tell people that something happened because we can't let them go outside, but we can't just like cause a panic. We can't cause a panic. And also like, what are we supposed to say to them? Do you think anybody's going to believe us? Thomas Jane's like, we like what we saw shouldn't be possible. Like we will sound crazy if we, if we say something about this and they settle on trying to convince Andre Brower's character first, because he's like, you know, a big city lawyer, so he, you know, is sort of a, 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 in a position of authority, and, you know, if they can convince him, then he, he can help them convince the rest of, the, of, of the, the group in the store, but that sort of just immediately goes to shit, because they try to tell him, and he, uh, in bad faith, assumes that they're trying to play a prank on him. Um, to humiliate him further. Yeah. As he says, uh, you know, he mentions that he lost a lawsuit to uh, uh, Thomas Jane's character. Right. And uh, he feels like Thomas Jane just has it out for him, essentially. Right, exactly. I I love the turn of his character, too, because, like, they suggest at the very beginning that there's, like, some tension between the two, but the interactions with them that we see up till that point is, like, you know, they have sort of... Like, like I was saying earlier, like, they, they commiserate over the damage that they've each taken from the storm and are like, ah, oh, shit, you know, what are you gonna do? And, you know, Thomas Jane offers to give him a ride into town, and it seems like, you know, that they have found some common ground. And then as soon as Thomas Jane goes to Andre Brower to, like, confide in him and ask for help, then it's just a turn on the dime. It's like, you must think I'm fucking stupid, right? He points at Jimmy's like, I've heard you talking behind my back, and this is you locals trying to humiliate me because I'm from out of town, and you think that I'm gonna fall for some absurd story about monsters in the mist and all of this stuff, and... and he makes a scene and it ends up like doing exactly what they didn't want to do and sort of like riling everybody up. I love when they take the, the manager in the back cause he's kind of mocking them too. And they take him in the back to show him like the piece of the tentacle that they cut off <laughs> and they, and it just like they touch it and it like dissolves into this puddle of goo and he and just, that looks great because it's a practical. Yeah. Like, they've actually built that bit of tentacle. Mm-hmm. Which is cool because it matches the CG perfectly yeah. in design. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it, uh, it it flips and flops around a little bit before before dissolving into goo. Yep. So it was nice. Yeah, they got some uh, you know, they got some good work in there. Exactly. I mean, tensions really start to escalate. We haven't talked about Mrs. Carmody yet, um, who becomes a very important character. Oh, the religious uh, one? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, she's the, the sort of... Really. Yeah, well, yeah, she becomes... I mean, she she starts out as as, a, as an obnoxious 
and bitchy character, but yeah, really becomes the the central human antagonist of the film. She thinks it's the rapture. She thinks it's it's the yeah. Time. She's yeah. sort of the yeah. the crazy evangelical woman who's you know always uh, accusing people of being sinners and so on and so forth, thinking that of course this is the the end of the world. This is judgment day. Yeah. What's interesting about uh you know this is like a lot of movies of this kind do the whole what if humans were the real villains yeah you know they use like a a monster or whatever as sort of a macguffin to get to that point what's interesting about the mist Uh is it kind of equally does both yeah like it's equally about how terrible humanity is as well as having a real monstrous threat that is very present in the movie i think it's largely threaded by what's interesting um like i think i think there's a lot of intent there to to make sure that we are cutting back and forth uh so we could we could enjoy like just just yeah from from a a piece of entertainment i mean that's what kind of makes it unique as a film you know usually films of this kind choose one or the Mm -hmm. other and this one pretty excellently does both yeah and and i don't i don't think this movie while i do think that it has a a very nihilistic worldview i don't think it's necessarily trying to say that humans are the monsters not in the same way that like the later seasons of the walking dead do like really heavy-handedly i think it's more trying to say that like bad times bring out the worst in people and bring out their worst instincts. I don't think it's necessarily trying to say that they're monsters. Cause I mean, really the only, the only like really bad one is Mrs. Carmody. There's another character who specifically says, I believe in God, but like not the mean, nasty one. You yeah. Do. I don't believe yeah. that he's the bloodthirsty asshole. Yeah. That, and he that like bravely sacrifices yeah. himself yeah. for the group. Like, well, not really. I mean, he goes out. Well, in the par- yeah, he goes out in the parking lot to try to get the shotgun yeah, out of the other rest. dude's car, knowing yeah. the ri- and then is just immediately. And we'll, we can talk about that the, scene the too. Biker but taker. the bike, yeah, the biker taker. But um, I mean, and, and you know, like towards at, at the beginning, like the vast majority of the people look at Mrs. Carmody like she's a crank. And it's only as things continue to get worse and worse and just her sort of vague doomsaying ends up being, you know, sort of coincidentally confirmed that as people become more and more desperate, they become more susceptible to her her proselytizing. In in an age of chaos, the fool is king. Right, exactly. I think uh, this movie really smartly kind of approaches that those ideas in like post Iraq War, post like nine eleven, yeah, you know stuff. Um, I will say it gets a little. One of the few examples of the dialogue like falling flat is it gets a little too didactic when uh, Toby Jones's character oh, yeah, is sure. like. Uh, yeah, uh, bad times bring out the worst in people. Just look at the military or religion. Or, yeah. Uh, that's basically what he 
says. Yeah, that's why we invented politics and religion yeah. or something like that. It sounds like an R atheism. Yeah, post. and it's like, okay, <laughs> we understood but, that's what you're trying to say. But, but you know, it doesn't even bother me that much because it's not it's not a sentiment that is like largely echoed by the other characters. No, one of the characters. So it feels while while it does seem to be somewhat of a of a thesis statement of the film itself it doesn't feel like every character is saying that it's believably just sort of toby jones's yeah. worldview or whatever and but what and what i appreciate about it coming from him is that despite saying that he is one of the purely good characters sure. in the film who is yeah. a continued voice of reason and is constantly courageously risking his life for An expert marksman. Truth. Yeah, and and the only one who knows how to use the gun that Lori Holden has in her purse. And I, I like how like the manager of the of the store kind of like laughs at him when he says that he knows how to shoot, and he's like, "You Ollie, come on, man!" And he's like, I've "Done some target shooting. I was state champion in 1997." It's like. Okay, yeah, so he, he has some shooting experience, like, more than anybody else in this fucking room, right? Like, somebody's got to hold the one gun they have. Yeah, just because he's unsuspecting. I like yeah, and, and despite the fact that he covers. has this this kind of, this kind of you know, edgy, uh, our atheism sort of worldview, he doesn't let it make him apathetic, you know? Yeah, yeah, and I, th- I think that's a good distinction, because, like, while this film is very nihilistic... It's important that the characters themselves aren't nihilistic as well. Yes. Um, Although I will say uh, the the movie kind of punishes them for for not sharing its nihilism. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I but I agree with you. I mean, it gives us somebody to root for, right? Yeah. It gives like having having this little what becomes a, an increasingly smaller and smaller core group of characters who are our heroes and who do believe in the the power of good to triumph. It gives us somebody to root for, even though the movie says uh, your optimism uh, is, uh, is unfounded. Yeah, and even if you're not rooting for them, like uh, Mrs. Carmody, like her worldview is not nihilistic. Like it's trying to explain what's going on um, in a very off-kilter deranged way but like that worldview is saying like we can keep it at bay through sacrifices just like yeah uh, and i think that's part of the other thing this movie is trying to approach is like the hubris of man to understand the unknowable yeah because like Mm -hmm. that's that's the whole thing with the army kind of unleashing this to begin with yeah and and it plays into the end of the film pretty well also like yeah that that whole i'm not gonna say it but like that that whole idea yeah the hubris of you know kind of taking Mm -hmm. taking things into your own hands and pretty much every time this movie when folks try to take something into their own hands it goes wrong yeah and and i truly i i I will just to double back really quick when you're saying that mrs carmody doesn't have a nihilistic worldview is like you're right because explicitly like religion is the inverse of nihilism right it's believing very powerfully in something rather than nothing but she has 
the the cruelest worldview sure. of just about anybody yeah. in the film because as that kind of fire and brimstone evangelical that she is, she thinks that everything that's happening is divine will and punishment. Yeah. And that the only way to keep it at bay is with sacrifice. Expiation. The, the word of the day that they keep saying over and over again. Expiation. I got a good laugh out of that. I, I like when, yeah, she's she's finally getting her little cult together. She's got, you know, like, she's winning the people over and they're all kind of chanting expiation and you hear... Oh, uh, what's the, the guy on the gun? What's his name? Uh, uh, Toby, Toby, Jones. Yeah, Toby, yeah, Toby Jones. Yeah, Toby Jones. Yeah, like he, he says, um, like, oh, here we are on fucking Sesame Street. Yeah, the, the word of the day is expiation. Yeah, that's good. There's, there's a number yeah. of, uh, of Sesame Street bits in this movie. I yeah, guess. Elmo shows up. It's really fucking <laughs> weird. It's crazy, the count. Um, <laughs> two. Yeah, the whole gang's here. But yeah, can we talk about the creatures? Yeah, yeah. sure. There's a lot. This movie's chock full of them. I wasn't expecting that. I, I, I'd always heard about the spiders and I thought, okay, there's a big spider creature, you know, and we're going to find out about it in the usual movie monster way of, you know, the three blind men and an elephant and, oh, the tentacles are this part of the weird spider thing. And, oh, here comes the next part. And we slowly figure out what this whole thing is outside the mist that's, uh, beset them. Nope. No, it's there's all sorts of shit. There's a there's yeah. a there's a whole myriad of creatures, and they are all over the place design wise. Um, I don't know how I feel about it. If I'm being perfectly honest, I think pterodactyls are a weird choice. I think oh, I uh, like the pterodactyls. I like their I like their four wings and their weird bifurcated lower jaws. Yeah, it's it's like they're just it's a very adventure movie, Flash Gordony kind of design. I, it's something you'd see on like Skull Island. Yeah, I it's really very King Kong. I really respect the confidence to just show all, like so many of the creatures very clearly this you movie know strikes... in a movie called the mist it would be so easy to hide stuff in the mist well That's it what strikes I was it yeah. strikes a fantastic balance because it does both it does yeah it does, yeah, it does yeah. both you, you get a lot of both like and we, it's, not, it's not a complaint it's just not what i expected we never and... we never see the full beast that has the tentacles that that drags norm out into the mist That's true one of the care i can't i think it's thomas jane but i can't remember one of the characters even says is like what were those tentacles even attached to? And it's like, we never know. We uh, never see it again. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, some other things we see really well, like the spiders and the pterodactyls and the and the the big locusts. But then there's also that mysterious, like, big creature that's out in the mist that, you know, we kind of see impressions of a couple of times when it kills a couple people, but you never really get like a super clear look at it. Mm. And I think I think the balance is great. It's like there's it keeps you feeling like there's always some fresh horror out there. And I think I think it's a, a fantastic example of letting you have your cake and eat it too. Yes, so I, I, I would agree. I I just I don't think that the pterodactyls are very scary. I think they're fun, and I and so it's not a complaint. Yeah, I just as creature designs go, like a mouth yeah. with wings or something might have to me been a little bit more Stephen King, a little bit more fitting than like just a, a pterodactyl. I know it has, it's got four wings, but like it's all pterodactyl. What's even more interesting about that is like it's paired with the locusts, which I think are much better designed. The locusts are, are, are probably my favorite. Yeah, and like pairing them together in the same scene just emphasizes kind of how generic 
the, oh, the yeah. I mean, I, kind of feel. I don't know if generic is fair, but it is to me. It's just it's it's sort of outside of genre. Like to me, it's it's very action adventure to have like whoa pterodactyls and you know all the stuff. But like that that also kind of works. It's a dimension creeping in and the rest. Just I guess just aesthetically, it, it, it's. Um, I like them. I think they're big. I think they look like big scaly pelicans. They've got the big. They do. They've got yeah. the big jaws with the cool. with the neck flap, and they're flying around, swallowing these big bugs whole. Um, I like it too because, like, they don't feel like they're necessarily like malicious. It's like they show up because they're trying to eat the bugs. I like that. And they crash into because they're big. They crash through the window because the bugs are drawn to all of the lights. And so they break in and they're just, and once they're in there, like, yeah, they start attacking people, but they're also just flying around trying to eat more of the bugs. And it feels more just, it feels more like chaotic. It's like, they're not there explicitly to hunt these people. Like a lot of the other monsters are, they're just kind of there. It's where we first learn that it's not a creature that is invading, right? It is another reality. Yeah, it's it's with a, a whole ecosystem a all of its own. Ecosystem, all to its own, like yeah. it's yeah, it's it's an alien. We don't we don't see it, but it is an alien forest that has come in with all yeah. of the creatures, which does kind of make it an adventure movie in a way, right? Like yeah. the, the jungle has come in, and you have to adventure way, your way out of the jungle. Um, and so it does work. I, I'm certainly not saying that, and I and I, I would. Um, I just. I don't know. It really, it really caught me. It really surprised me because, like, when the bugs first land, I'm like, "Oh, does it have like weird bugs that detach from it? This thing that is outside?" It's like, "Oh, wait, no, it's just a whole world." Um, and it is the 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 pelican lizards that do kind of bring that home. Yeah. Um, I, I, just, I, I just the bugs have like almost human faces along with the spiders, and it's really fucking yeah. freaky. And the the tentacles have almost human mouths on them, and it's really fucking freaky. And the the pelicans don't have anything like that. They don't like, and it, they they just feel like weird space pelicans. And they I got just, human eyes. Yeah, but it, it's it wasn't. An, I don't know. They got, I, I be- they they got beady little human eyes. I, I, I just wish they'd been a little more uncanny, I guess. But it's, sure. it, this is this is the tiniest of a complaint. I I like the I like the way they move. Like the I, they yeah. have because they have because yeah. they have four they have four wings. And, like, the front pair are, they sort of, like, double as arms, like bat wings. It's like when they're in the store and they're, like, walking around, they sort of, like, walk around on all fours like bats, but then they have an extra pair of wings on their back. I think that stuff is cool. I I agree. They're, like, they're the the goofiest of all the monsters. But I like them. I like them. They have a nice attention to detail, again, uh, in their behavior. Like, when the locusts are starting to swarm because of all the 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 lanterns in the front mm-hmm. of the store they start swooping in and rather than like just grabbing them and going in and out they kind of ride the wall as they grab them mm-hmm. or ride the window and you get like shatter bits as they you know kind of swipe along the window and it feels like what uh an actual like bird or yeah. animal would do and like once they they crash into the store it does really feel like if you've ever had a bird like yes. accidentally fly into your into house, your house exactly. Like, they are kind of panicked and like going up against the walls a lot of times, trying to find 
the yeah, corners. they're they're breaking the, they're knocking lights and stuff off the the ceiling. I absolutely love that scene. I, I think it's expertly directed. I think it's extremely well edited. Just like the fucking chaos of that scene. It's like we see before that they've rigged up some work lights off some car batteries. And they mention it's like, okay, these batteries like do not have much juice and these lights will sap them fast. You've probably only got about five or ten minutes worth of light. So they're like, okay, we'll save it for emergencies. Like if something gets into the store. And so when the pterodactyls start sort of like crashing into the window the the rednecky guys run back and they start turning on all of the the lights and at that same moment thomas jane or no it's toby jones who has the revelation the bugs the locusts are attracted to the light they're coming towards the light and so they start trying to turn all of the like flashlights and lanterns and stuff on while behind them jim and myron are running around turning on all of these big shop lights so it's just like Nobody is on the same page. It's total chaos, especially once they get into the store. Everybody's running around. They had what they thought was a great idea of getting mops and putting them in buckets full of, like, lighter fluid so they can use them as, like, torches. They can't fucking get them lit. The guy who does immediately trips over the mop bucket, spilling it everywhere, and sets himself on fire. They almost burn down the fucking store. Like, it's just, it's so fucking chaotic and, and insane. And I feel like it's just, again, just so well directed and edited where you can... It feels chaotic, but you can still track the action. You can still keep track of all your characters and what they're doing and watch all of their sort of carefully laid plans just unravel immediately. Yeah, it does an incredible job of laying everything out spatially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it feels like while the scene is chaotic, you know exactly where you are in the store yeah. at any given time, which is quite a feat to be honest i'm sure they storyboarded the hell out of it especially with the, yeah all the the creatures and stuff but it's still very and again mixing another great little blink and you miss it exa- like detail where it's cg enhancing practicals laurie holden swings a rake at one of the bugs and knocks it on the ground and she goes to stomp on it to kill it and when her foot comes down on it she slips and it's just for a second like she regains her balance but they catch it from multiple angles but it's it's just like it's, it's so clearly like this like tight attention to detail like oh what would really happen here and they execute on it really nicely and, the and way, a lot of films like that would be a happy accident or whatever but like it's so well done and it could have it actually could have been a happy accident I believe in Entirely that they probably had a tennis ball or something on a stick that they were flying when they were filming it, that they were waving in front of her for her to react on. And when she stepped on it, it slips out from under her a little bit. Like it feels like an organic moment, even though it is a clearly CG bug. Yeah. What I like is like even if in the scene like it like let's say it was an accident, right? They did catch it from several angles that like I don't think that they could have been shooting at from at the same time because there's so much going on in the background. Um, 
so like it it yeah there was a lot of planning involved there or the at point, least like the point is, is the point is that it feels very natural whether yes. it was a happy accident or planned it's like that's that's the stuff that I feel like makes the the CG age better is that it feels it does feel real to an extent yeah it's, it's textural another thing I I love in that scene that we get that sort of sets up Mrs. Carmody for her cult a little later is that one of the locusts lands on her and before that we've seen it you know sting one of the uh like the the cashier who we get like almost has like she has a little moment of romance with Sam Witwer um you know cuz they were into each other in high school and they sort of set that uh, again very cruelly set up this like little light for these characters in the darkness and then immediately kill her off in just yeah. like a horrible way one of the most brutal deaths of the whole movie i think you know her bloated up neck yeah from this uh the sting or bite or whatnot. Yeah, it flies in just... and stings her on the neck and she asphyxiates as as her neck just, like, swells up like a fucking toad. You know, so we immediately see what these things are capable of. And, yeah, one lands on Mrs. Carmody and she sort of, like, very calmly, like, walks up her chest and she's, like, she has her hands up and she's not freaking out. She's like, you know, God, my life for you. Thy will be done, essentially. And, like... With animals, if you don't freak out, they're not going to freak out back at you, and it flies off. But of course, she sees this as a sign of the divine at work, that she is chosen, that she is a vessel. And because others see that, it allows her to draw more of those people to her. Just really excellently structured, believably so as well. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I love that sequence. I think... uh... It, it really works well in kind of structuring the, the second half of the movie. Yeah. I feel like that's a great, like, almost midpoint of the movie. Totally. Um, because that's where, you know, truly everyone understands how fucked up shit really is. Yeah, and how fucked they are. Yeah. That, like, they thought that they were going to, you know, come together and and find a way to survive and just immediately what happens is a bunch of monsters break into the store and wreak havoc and kill a couple of people and a dude accidentally sets himself on fire. When the dude, like, sets himself on fire where he, like, trips over the bucket, it's like kind of a pratfall a little bit like your your instinct is to laugh at it and we did we do but then the movie is sort of like decides to punish you for that because that character is uh not just dead and gone off screen but he is survived with these horrible third degree burns all over his body and is, like, really the impetus for them trying to go to the pharmacy because he's so horribly burned. Like, we have to go get some antibiotics to prevent infection. We gotta get painkillers because he's literally lying there begging them to kill him because he's in so much pain. Give me the gun and I'll do it. Please. Just, like... Yeah, I mean, it's classic Stephen King structuring of, like, very much therefores. Like, this happened, therefore this has to happen, therefore this is going to happen, characters do this. 
uh, really smartly Very done. action motivated, um, yeah. Brutal as hell. Yeah, and, again, and yeah, horrible and cruel and mean and made me feel bad about laughing at the moment where he actually gets set on fire because it is kind of funny. Like, it does feel like sort of a slapstick bit. And then it's, it's comedy like. Bears. A comedy of errors, but then it's like, well, here's the aftermath of it, yeah. <laughs> and you're not just going to get to forget about it like in, in an actual comedy where you'd never see that character again. It's like, no, we're going to force you to look at the aftermath of it and see the... the Anguish with yeah. him. Yeah. Um, well, oddly, like, he ends up dying off screen. He does. He does, yes. Um, Which makes it worse. To me, because like like we we see him in anguish afterwards, and they're attending to him, and he asks for a gun to kill himself. Yeah, and they don't give it to him. They're gonna try and get him some ointments at the the CVS next door, um, or the pharmacy or whatever. And uh, and after they get back from the horrors that are at the pharmacy, the spider related horrors, um, where numerous characters yeah, die horribly, then we find out that he died. Yeah. Off screen. Yeah. Well, yeah, because Thomas Jane just comes back cool. and collapses from exhaustion after that scene. And they say, like, he slept for most of the day. And then they tell him, you know, because he is, we have a whole huge cast of characters, but, like, he is our lens primarily, you know. So we don't see what happened while he was asleep. And he comes to, it's like, yeah, while you were asleep, so-and-so died from his burns. And it's like, well, shit, after all of that, after all of the horrors that they've endured, going to that pharmacy and seeing a, a a guy full of spiders, full of baby spiders, explode and my personal hell, yeah, and just like really, just totally nightmarish. And it was what did they accomplish other than the deaths of those people? Nothing. <laughs> they accomplished nothing. Yeah, talk about a horrifying scene too that pharmacy yeah. scene is fantastic yeah yeah um i love kind of the the drip reveal of it because you know they they get there and the door is propped open so they're like that's odd that's not not good. a good sign yeah. yeah it's a spider hole yeah, yeah. full they, of spiders they start getting medicine and then uh one of them i think looks up yeah, and, uh, and they see all of these bodies wrapped in cocoon. in cocooned in in webs, and uh, and and Jim the handyman is uh, basically running around going, "Oh God, oh no, oh God, oh no." <laughs> uh, he he seems very arachnophobic. Yeah. Um, well, I mean that scene's a pretty huge turning point for him as well, which we'll, we can discuss a little bit. But yeah, he like backs into somebody who is still alive the the military police that we we see earlier uh in, in the movie um who orders Sam Witwer and his his buddies back to the base even though we got 10 days leave we're on our way out of town all leaves are canceled you got to get back to base you you're going to make me relate with some military dudes immediately as a viewer uh, yeah take like, away their vacation take away their vacation <laughs> frankly any any character you take away to, their like, PTO. With them. take yeah. away their, their their vacation and i will immediately sympathize well in fairness i think they had kind of a good reason to take away their vacation because they opened an extra dimensional portal to uh hell basically yeah. <laughs> it's like well not time for vacation right now we kind of got to fix this but anyway they find him and he's still alive and uh he sort of croaks out it's all our fault which gives them the clue where they they then find out later military experiment, so on and so forth. Which is cool because we do see that guy. Yeah, at the very beginning at the grocery store. Yeah, he's he's the one. Yeah, really he, he's the one who comes who be. comes in and and gets them. Um, 
But uh, yeah, he is. Um, He's full of spiders. He's oh. full. Of, he's full of baby spiders. They start to. We see he's got this horrible, tumorous mass of pustules all over his chest and, and on his neck and face, and they start to come out in these little, little tiny spiders scurrying all over him. And then we start to see the bigger spiders and the bigger spiders, and then there's a really big one outside the door. But uh, I love when that character when he just kind of tips over, and as he hits the ground, he just bursts open just like spilling thousands of these tiny little uh spider as you said spiders with human mouths um i love that design they're probably the coolest designed yeah. uh, monsters in this movie they, like, i think their uh their webbing that they spit is like acid yeah too. corrosive yeah. yeah it's very cool it, it hangs in the air really like delicately too like they fire it and it just kind of like sits there for a second before slowly drifting down mm-hmm. um though nearly weightless um, I liked that. So they they get they get the medicine. They get back to the store, but at the cost of like several people's deaths. Um, and you know, like we sort of hinted at, this is a, a big turning point for Jim because up to this point, like though he's generally been kind of an asshole, like he's always sort of been like he's always been on like our hero's side He's basically. Yeah, you know. He'll still be your guy. Yeah, and yeah, he, he's he's easily he's a bit he's a bit cowardly, like the old lady has to kinda uh shame him into going to the pharmacy with him, the old the old retired teacher, Granny. But a- after this he comes back and he's just like fucking broken. And he immediately goes over to uh to to Mrs. Carmody's little growing cult um and becomes like one of her most uh zealous flunkies um and you know be- becomes a-, a villain for for the rest of the film it's great to get that much of a character arc from like such an ancillary character who would generally be like a throwaway character in a yeah. different movie and to get like a true character arc out of him um it's impressive yeah it's it's just it's well it's just again just it's just good writing yeah and i i gotta say like a lot of this ensemble work feels like an outline for what season one of the walking dead would become totally um obviously that show goes certain directions that i don't like (sighs) yeah well i mean who even the first season is really excellent first season is great yes Thanks to Frank Darabont's excellent direction and writing. And Greg Nicotero's practicals as well. Yeah, and uh, Greg Nicotero did uh, a lot of the creature effects for this movie as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Darabont collaborator. Yeah, I mean, shit, when we do get the practicals in this movie, they're they're fucking ace. Not to sidetrack us too much, but I, I have a question that left me a little confused about an element of this movie. So... Andre Brower's character, earlier in the movie, he decides to leave. Yeah. Along with a group of others. And then we never see of them yeah. again. Never see him. We don't know if they yeah. if they made it, if they didn't, how far they got. Much like how we don't know what the tentacles are attached to. Yeah. I, I feel like that's a Just really those weirdly unknowns. un... I kind of would like that to be resolved as well. Point. Yeah. I, even if we saw like all body like so in the mist as they're going towards the station wagon later on, like that would do a lot. Mm-hmm. 
Because um, at the very beginning of the film, we do get the mother. Who's like, oh my god, I came to the store for like two minutes. I've left my eight-year-old to look after my three-year-old. Yeah. I've got to get back to my house. You guys don't understand. They're like, yo, lady, you're going to die if you go out in that mission. She's like, I don't care. I'm going. And she leaves and she just walks off into Silent Hill. And um, it's, so, it's so misty. Yeah. But uh, she just walks into the fog and uh, uh, disappears for what we think is the rest of the movie. However... Yeah. Well, I mean, and and we'll, she gets, we'll yeah. She gets she gets we're, a conclusion. We're working our way to to the end, but like I I do think that like not knowing what happened to Andre Brower and his party is just kind of a further reinforcement of the the nihilism of the film in that like. Who kn- who knows what happened to them and who cares? It doesn't fucking matter. Nothing matters, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like there's there there's no there's no greater plan at work here. Like everyone is at the mercy of of a cruel, chaotic universe. Yeah. Like, and I mean, in fairness, our copy ended before the post credit scene. Oh, yes, of course. Like, sitting on the beach with a mai tai, uh, kicking back. <laughs> Yeah, he, with one of the the locusts on his shoulder, he's befriended <laughs> a little pet. Yeah, it's he's like a, it's like a parrot. He's got like a little. It's got like it's wearing like a little uh, a little lay around its yeah. around its neck. Um, before we get into the ending, which we we absolutely do have to talk about, there is a a conclusion to the 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 Mrs. Carmody saga. You know, she is able to uh, like sway pretty much almost everybody in the store over to her little cult. They grab Sam Witwer and uh, pretty horribly sacrifice him to the, the beasts outside because the other two military guys, his buddies, they kill themselves. They find them hanging in the back room and he's the only one left and he has to be the sin eater for the for the military even though as just a young enlistee he had absolutely nothing to do with the the project uh yeah and like this is the the point in the movie where we get the most direct explanation of why this is happening yeah you know and i i feel like that's kind of a mixed bag for me because on one hand uh i think the explanation is good and it works for the film on the other hand, I think the nihilism of the movie almost makes me want it to have no reason. Yeah, I think I think ambiguity would be fine. I don't think they over-explain anything, sure. though. Yeah. Pretty much all we get is he says, like, the rumor around the base is that the scientists thought that there were, believed that there were parallel dimensions and wanted to try to open a window to see into one. And they're like, oh, well, what if Mrs. Carmody is like, what if that window became a door and all hell spilled through? And like, that's, that's pretty much it. That's all you need. That's pretty much it. I like it. And it's still only based on the rumor Mm. that you know, these privates or whatever heard at the base, like they didn't have anything to do with it. And like I said, you know, Sam Witwer becomes the, the sin eater for the military because he's the only one left. And they're like, well, we need to sacrifice somebody. So it's you, it's your fault. You represent the people who did this. So we're going to toss you out into the mist to be torn apart by monsters. So I think it's good. I think that 
getting that exposition works for this movie because of the other adventure kind of elements I was mentioning earlier. That, like, the creature... If the creature in the fog was just a creature, or the fog itself was malevolent, like, I, I don't think I would want so much exposition and leaving it ambiguous like the fog itself would would work. But here, because there's, like, all these creatures coming in and rolling through, I kind of do want an explanation. And I'm kind of glad And I, I think it's one. just enough for one to be like, okay, so this mist... And all of these creatures are extra dimensional. And it excites the imagination too. Like it's a it's an answer that does provide a lot more questions. And like, okay, well, if this is like a new dimension rolling in in this mist, like what other creatures, flora and fauna can can come in from it? And it you know, it, it, it opens it, it doesn't up... it doesn't take anything away from the mystery of the mist. No, it's it still op- a big mystery. In box. fact, it opens infinite a mist. <laughs> it opens infinite possibilities. Yes. Because it's like, okay, these these things have spilled in from some other world. What is that world? I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. what, you know, what what could have, what else could have come from? Yes, I agree. And it works for the film. However, like, I think it might have worked better if not all the characters were privy to it. Because I think part of the the concept of it in the movie is, like, they are struggling to justify and rationalize the unknowable. That's part of the whole thing with uh, Miss Carmody and, uh, you know, her cult. Yes. What I'll counter with, though, is that I think by the time we get to the point in the film where they do give us the explanation, it no longer matters. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, I think true. I think if we had gotten it earlier, then it would have fallen more flat. 100%. But at that point in the film, knowing the source or the cause does not fundamentally change anything about any of the character's situation. What makes it actually kind it's, of scarier is it reaffirms yeah, it's, the, it's, the, the beliefs of the of the of the cult. It's an it's an ant it's an answer, but it doesn't offer anything, sure. right? It doesn't it doesn't matter. There's no solace to be found. Yeah, no, right. like the the understanding does not bring them anything. It doesn't give them an edge. It doesn't help them survive any better. It doesn't like give them an idea of what to do. It just is like okay, this is like you know the tornado has blown through. Yeah. Doesn't change the fact that my house is gone. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, frankly, like half of these creature films that are really mysterious and strange that we learn about along the way give us this kind of exposition up front. The blob thing from another world, you know, like right. the even um, uh, invasion of the body snatchers, right? Like it's, it's a thing from another world. Like yeah. that's already known. In this case, it's just you know it's a little bit more than that. It's it's things from another world reality yeah well um so after this thomas jane and uh laurie holden and some and toby jones and a few of their other core characters are like this is way too dangerous we gotta get the fuck out of here we gotta get some groceries and leave in the middle of the night as they're trying to leave there's a big confrontation where mrs carmody tries to stop them and they try uses their cult they try to sacrifice little boy and toby jones uh kills mrs carmody shoots her 
right in the stomach and then in the head. She, I like it because she, she's drinking a bottle of milk like a true psycho. <laughs> and when that first shot happens, it shatters the, the bottle of milk in her hand before the, the second one goes right between her eyes. The acting's good. She really milks it for all it's worth. <laughs> Fuck uh... off. Um, but so this this the the death of their leader sort of shocks the rest of the cult enough into letting uh them all leave uh about half of the party dies on the way to the land rover they get lost and they get separated and they get lost and they you know get uh, torn apart by spiders. Uh, one of them manages to run back to the store, and uh, R.I.P. the god Toby Jones. Um, he gets picked up by the the big crab monster that we kind of see in the mist and um, tears like him shot. apart. That yeah. shot was really nice, and I think it works. Yeah, it because it looks like it's much farther away. Yeah, and then you know because like like perspective is all fucked because that's what fog does. Yeah, um, so you call it volumetric fog or atmospheric perspective. That's like your best use of making distance feel things feel closer or further away. And so yeah, like yeah, the 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 thing you think it's like pretty far off, and then you realize the, the claw's already right there and it's picked him up, and it's yep. just got like really long arms. Um, they do that earlier too. It's the with the introduction of the bugs. Yes, you know, that character is looking shot. out in the mist and. You think it's this tiny little flying thing that's pretty far away, but actually it's pretty close. And then it bop, it lands on the yeah. on the glass. And I really like how they yeah they use the fog to play with depth. Um, it's clever. Yeah. Well, so uh, we end up with a group of characters. The only ones who made it to the car. We've got Thomas Jane. We've got his young son Laurie Holden, and then uh, the the two elderlies in the back seat. The the old retired teacher granny um and uh the the older gentleman who was the first one to come running in there's something in the mist um i like voice of reason throughout the film yeah um they're the only ones who make it to the car and they say okay well we're just gonna drive south as far as we can go and hope that we can get to the end the edge of the mist um, they, t- I like that they do a, a little drive by of, uh, the, the store with all of the lights on and be like, we did it. We got to the cars, you dumb motherfuckers. <laughs> Sunk my dick, eat shit. Um, do some donuts in the parking lot. I think yeah. Skirt. <laughs> <laughs> they, and also on their way out of town, they drive past Thomas Jane's house and find, uh, his wife, uh, all, cocooned in spider webs on the porch and he laments as like the house would have been safe but the tree my grandfather's tree went through the window you know um so that's how and they were able to get in again just like so fucking so fucking cruel um and well we've we've got to talk about the the i would say infamous ending yeah i mean even at the time this came out this was like a very talked about ending i hated the ending of this movie when the the, the first couple of times i saw it i saw this in theaters it came out in 2007 so i would have been about 14 and the ending made me so fucking mad. I I have come around so hard on it over the years, and honestly, I think it's one of the one of the 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 best and also worst endings in any movie I've ever seen. Certainly, one of the most memorable endings in any movie. Yeah. So they they drive. They're driving and driving through 
the mist, seeing all of this destruction, everything. They they have this one great moment where they have to stop to allow just like a a kaiju sized beast uh, cross the road. Um, na, na, na. <laughs> yeah, I mean that the the sense of scale and spectacle is is great. That that creature yeah. reminds me a lot of like a Guillermo del Toro monster. Yes. It's like a big, it's like a big giant beetle, but it's got all these tentacles hanging down from it's under it. Almost like a weird fucked up rib cage too. It's great. Yeah, yeah. it's it's very great cool. Silhouette. But uh, yeah, eventually they run out of gas, and there's no end to the mist in sight. And Thomas Jane's son is asleep in Laurie Holden's lap, and they all just kind of have this moment where they're sitting there and realizing, like, well, we're fucked. We did our best. No no one can say that we didn't give it our all. And Thomas Jane sort of, like, pulls out the gun, and he's, like, looking around at all of them, and they're all just kind of like, yeah, it's come to this. And he pops open the cylinder, and he counts the bullets, and, oh... There's only four, and there's five of them. I love how he is aligned. He's just loading the gun back. He's like, well, I guess I'll figure something out. And so he like, you know, at the, and it's, it's a noble sacrifice, you know, to not take the easy way out yeah. in these circumstances. Well, and to However, to to grant to grant all of the others the the, the mercy, merciful yeah, yeah, merciful deaths that they're not, you know, horribly torn apart by otherworldly eldritch monsters. And man, it's just like before he does it, it's like his son like wakes up and like looks at him, and then we get the cut to the outside of the car, and we hear the the four shots and see the muzzle flash and then just cut to thomas jade in the car just ah! just screaming in anguish. anguish he puts the gun in his mouth he's just like pulling the trigger just like hoping that he might have miscounted there might be a fifth one in there just like totally deranged in his anguish honestly what this feels like to me and much much better handled because um, ultimately I think Thomas Jane's a better actor, but this feels sort of like the proto uh, season three of The Walking Dead scene where uh, Rick's wife and the baby die or whatever, oh. and he's like, he's like oh no! <laughs> like they, they, I feel like they have a very similar tone. But again, yeah. I think Thomas Jane is a better actor, so there's actually some gravitas to this. And he gets out of the car and he just starts screaming. He's like, oh, he's like, come on, come get me! He's just like banging on the hood of the car, wailing for the monsters to come and and put him out of his misery. And what does he see coming out of the mist? A tank with soldiers in gas masks with guns walking behind it and and it's a full military convoy and we see as just like the mist is starting to clear as they're going through and burning all of the like insect hives and stuff and all the the corruption along the way and you see trucks of refugees going by and he makes eye contact with Melissa McBride, who managed to get home to her two kids, the lady who goes off into the mist alone at the beginning. And it's just like, it's, oh God, it's just like so agonizingly 
mean. It's like, it, yeah, it's just like nothing means anything. Like, she got home to her kids. How? Doesn't matter. She got lucky. She did it. The cruel hand. And honestly, chaos. all of those people who stayed in the supermarket, probably fine. They hunkered down and the mist cleared. And it's just like, and this happens like less than two minutes after he's put a bullet into his own son's head. Yeah. It's like, if you just waited mm-hmm. two minutes longer, your salvation was right yeah. there. And the movie just kind of ends with him on his knees screaming at the sky. The mist yeah. clears at the absolute worst time possible. Yeah. He, he doesn't want to live. No, and exactly. He wants, well, he no. wants death. And, so, and at that moment where the mist can finally grant him death and he actually seeks death in the mist the mist clears fuck you yeah like goddamn <laughs> and death is and death for him is now out of reach because yep. now he's been saved the mm-hmm. military's there to save the day right with their fucking tanks and their guns and their bombs and their bombs <laughs> <laughs> in your head they are fighting and dying how how long was the mist actually active for like i want to say like yeah. Two, or, two, two or three, or three two days. or three days. I think we got two nights, two two full nights yeah. that we saw. I I feel like that makes it all the more cruel, honestly, yeah. because it's so brief. You know, once you zoom out a little bit, yeah, um, man, yeah, because usually in these kinds of sort of apocalyptic scenarios, you know, you see them having to like try to survive for the long haul and Create like it a really quote, unquote, new normal, right? And like, yeah, and it it really just like it society falls apart before yeah, the society their their society fell apart immediately, and yeah, they they were you know forced into fight or flight, life or death, and it's like yeah, if you just if they just hunkered down. They're in a fucking grocery store. They had enough food for how fucking long, right? I mean, really, the, the moral of the story is you should just be a prepper. Yeah, yeah right. You'll <laughs> be fine. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, this movie's ending is is like I said, it, it's it's notorious and uh, it is very divisive. Um, and again, I I hated it when I when I was a teenager, but um, have have really come around on it. Um, well, there's there's so much like meaning to it, and there's so much like room for discussion on it, and that I think gives it the weight that it deserves, that it needs, um, and and so I think it's fine. I I, I accept yeah. I accept the ending um, well, of the movie much more than what I would consider a truly mean spirited ending, like the remake of Pet Cemetery. Um, I was thinking about that movie, and like the ending of that film is just yeah. mean spirited and and also poorly executed, and like not. You know, like it doesn't feel yeah. earned, and it, just, it feels it feels like a waste. Whereas this doesn't feel like a waste; it uh, feels very carefully placed and very, you know, like there's a lot of intent here. Yeah. Well, and and the ending is is Frank Darabont's biggest change to the source material, because um, all I really remember about the novella is that it ends with, I think they like are as they're driving they catch like a radio broadcast or something that like is hints that other people are still out there and they kind of just drive off into the unknown like mm. towards some city or something so like a, a much more you know kind of ambiguous ending where this the movie just like darabont 
decides to like give a a very non ambiguous uh huge fuck you yeah <laughs> to all of our heroes in this I'm glad he did you know it's certainly more memorable than them just driving off into the yeah, absolutely. Sunset, so I mean, I think really the cruelest stroke they could have dealt is if he'd not only seen Melissa McBride on the 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 truck with the refugees, but also Andre Brower and his like, yeah. like that would have been that would have been the cruelest yeah. of all <laughs> is after all of that they they definitively made it out. Although I like I said I I like the ambiguity. I, yeah, he, I like he probably didn't. We don't know. Yeah. We have no idea. And 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 again, doesn't matter. The universe doesn't care. The uh, universe doesn't care about your feelings. As a last bit of trivia for this movie, uh, this was one of the first movies to, after it was released, they did a black and white cut of it, mm-hmm. where they re-released it in theaters in black and white. Um, I've never seen that version. Man, I bet I the CG looks even better, yeah. I, I wonder. I bet it does look better. I, I'm always a little skeptical of movies shot for color Just transferring filter, yeah. into black and white because, you know, contrast is such a focus with black yeah. and white stuff. But, you know, I think stuff like the CG um, might look better yeah. with it. And, like, I think uh, the black and white approach kind of works for the bleakness mm-hmm. of it in a way. So I'd be curious to see it. Yeah, and tone, also, tone is still really important in the mist, much yeah. much more so than color. Uh, it really is about like like just values in general because um, that's the whole interplay with the mist, like we were talking about earlier. So I can I can see it. I mean, like there there are a lot of like movies that do focus so heavily on tone that they still work really well in black and white. Indiana Jones is actually a great example mm. of that. Like, there's some really cool like recuts of Indiana that are that are made to feel more like they're works and it, it, they, they're pretty effective too. i feel like this movie is also just like premise wise the premise is such uh like a twilight zone kind of mm-hmm. uh sure, yeah. concept oh yeah that i feel like that that black and white might give it a sort of like classic uh old sci-fi kind of feel i i did see recently some screenshots they did a uh they released a black and white version of godzilla minus one looks like shit it looks awful oh really yeah, yeah. it looks terrible because that movie is obviously not shot for black and white and it's not contrasty enough it just no. looks uh, the black and white it just looks ugly it's yeah it, it's it's really bad have y'all have either of y'all ever watched the black and white version or excuse me the black and chrome version of fury road no. no, I've heard it's great, but I've never watched it because I love the color palette of that movie yeah. so much. It's to look at. But I mean, I I've heard that I've heard that the that the black and black and chrome uh, is hmm. is actually a, a great way to watch the movie. So I, I mean, yeah, any way you watch Fury Road is going to be you're winning. Way. Yeah, because you know, like you're, I, I you're watching Fury Road. <laughs> no, I think one on of an the iPhone. three or four. Don't times. tell David Lynch. One of the three or four times I saw Fury Road in theaters, I saw it in 3D. Ooh, and it's one of the few awesome. movies that works super well in Well, because it was actually, actually shot for it, I'm pretty sure. Like, yeah, they did yeah, the dual yeah. red cam and everything else. Like, yeah, without being gimmicky effect. either. Like, it, yeah. it works so well. It's got a few shots that have that made for 3D quality. But yeah, where fun. something flies directly at yeah, the screen. Like the skull at the very end mm-hmm. in the fire. Yeah. Um, you ready to rate this? We've this is a pretty Sailor, long episode. One last thing I wanted to cover really quickly is the music. 
Um, oh yeah, this sure. This movie is pretty sparse with music overall um, until the end. <laughs> until the end, and I was gonna say like that kind of neoclassical Elizabeth Fraser esque operatic vocals. Um, I like to end. think of it as like a dirge. Yeah. It's like a fucking. It's like a fucking funeral dirge. Absolutely, it works so well yeah. for that that whole ending stretch. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it really heightens. Uh, just like everything, the sense of of scale and awe, like when they see the big creature, to just like really hammering home like the tragedy of finding his wife dead and then killing all the people in the car and the, the it kicks in again like right as the tank appears yeah. it's like oh my god um yeah i'm, I'm gonna go ahead and slap a rating on this yeah. i i love this movie uh easy five out of five um probably my favorite frank darabont movie one of my favorite stephen king adaptations uh and uh one of the best of the of the era of the of the 2000s i think yeah, I think as we talked about it, my ratings only gone up. This is a relentlessly bleak and nihilistic movie. Cleve, what are you gonna rate it? Now look at you, dog. You're started. Finish, finish your plate. Okay. Okay. Fine. <laughs> well, if I'm gonna deny it a golden pod, just you finish know, your plate. Okay. Plate. I'm gonna give it a four and a half. Out of okay. Five. Okay. It's good. I don't think it's quite perfect, but it's an excellently made film, very tightly. Tightly scripted and paced. Yes. I think the dialogue is perfect. There's a few elements I would have liked more or less of. Um, I personally, while I agree, I think for its time, the CG is impressive. Now seeing the strings, it it, it took me out of it a little bit, Um, but it's charming um, and uh, it's nice. I'm just going to give it a strong four. Um, I thought it was great. That rating might go up over time. I need to think on it a little bit more. It's it's a movie that really benefits from multiple viewings. Yes. Like I said, the first time I saw it, like I hated the ending. Like I had all kinds of problems with it. And it's only like over the years as I've seen it more and more that I've grown to appreciate yeah, I think, it as, I think as like, a masterpiece. As a as a great work, I just I don't know if I can give it the same rating as the Blob. Like, I don't know if I'm there yet, but, like, that's that's sort of where my headspace is at. But, like, strong four, maybe I mean, 4.5, but I'll just say four. To use your words, golden apples and golden oranges. True. Um, but, all right, yeah, that's fine. Well, that'll give and The fair. Mist uh, a, a strong four and a half out of five average. Um, and uh, if you haven't seen it and you've sat through this and we spoiled the ending, sorry, but uh, the movie's worth watching anyway, so go check it out. Um, that's how podcasts work. That's how podcasts work. You know, if you've been listening to this, you know what it is. You know what it is. Cleveland, what are we going to talk about next week? It's your pick. What are we watching? You're going to be happy. Yeah? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm really trying to, to adapt uh, going into this year um, a mentality of uh, just picking those films that I just really need to see. I've, just, I've still got blind spots. I'll probably have blind spots until I die. There's just so many great movies out there. We always there, will. There's too, many, there's too many movies I'm out there. I'm really trying to prioritize educating myself this year. I'm gonna. I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to be better, y'all. So um, I think the the best place to start would be to just to speaking of finishing one's plate, uh, we're gonna do some more Cronenberg. We're Which one? The Brood. Fuck yes, dude. Oh, that's one of my favorites. I haven't seen I can't The Brood wait to see in it. such a long time. Yes. Fuck yeah. 
I never have. So yeah, I'm I'm very curious. I was actually um, uh, specifically shout out to friend Luke Orem. Uh, I was I was asking him. We talk about art and movies a lot, and um, uh, I was just asking him like, hey, what do, what do you think are some blind spots I can cover? And he was like, oh, you should definitely do the brood. Yeah, the the brood is is another one of my my favorite Cronenbergs. One of my one of the 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 few of my favorites that we haven't talked about yet. So mm-hmm. glad so to glad it. to fill that gap. Hell yeah. Well, that'll be next week. Let's do a quick sponsor. Quick sponsor time, sponsor time. It's the shelf that says skin milk. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, get this away from me. (laughs) Skin milk. Thanks, skin milk. No Uh, thanks. Skin milk. (laughs) Yes, before we wrap up, I forgot we have uh, prediction results from Night Swim. Yes, skin milk. Okay, so... (laughs) For box office, I said 14 mil. TC said 18 mil. Cleve, you said 2 mil. Cleve's um, got this one. It did 11.8 mil. Did it really? So, yep. Holy weekend, shit. U.S. and Canada. That's a, they must have been in every theater but ours. <laughs> Not a lot of competition. Yeah, I guess so, but again, there were only six of us yeah, in the theater. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah. So I got that one. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, I predicted 73. TC, you predicted 74. Ooh. And uh, Cleve, you predicted 20. Uh, it's sitting at a 24. Yeah, no baby. shit! Wow, is it really? Yeah. Wow, people hate it that much. I think that's harsh. Yeah. <laughs> and, I think that's fine. Uh, finally, collective rating, I said 3.5. Uh, TC said 3.8. Cleve, you said 2. Our collective rating was a 2.7. So Cleve gets that one as well. Ooh, just barely. Yep. Yeah. Sneak, and then, uh, nice. Kill count. Um, I predicted three. TC predicted three. Cleve, you predicted four. So TC and I get that we one. There. Oh, yeah. yeah, there were only um, two. Kills. And then finally. And you, know what, you know what's crazy, too, is in our predictions, I remember specifically saying. I think it's going to be more because there'll be a pool party, and there was a pool party, and, and they nobody used it died. Terribly. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't kill yeah. anyone in the, during the pool party. And finally, uh, who we thought would give it the highest rating? Um, I said Cleve. Uh, Tease, you said yourself, and then Cleve, you said me. Uh, I did give it the highest it a, rating. Gave it a three, while the two of us gave it a two. It's and just a good point for, but I like it. Um, so we all got two points. <laughs> Oh, okay. Right. Look at us. Okay. So, so we're starting right. you're off with the top. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tight race. Good. Good. All right. Yeah. Well, that'll do it for us this week. If you like the show, be sure to leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you're listening to this. Uh, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podpeoplepod. Shout out to our honorary pod boys, Sam, Zach, Micah, Mitchell, and Jans. Y'all are the best. Uh, follow us at letterbox.com slash podpeoplepod you'll find a list of all the films we've talked about on the show with our average ratings and links to those reviews. We've gone long, so I'm going to issue a, uh, a recommendation. Watch a Werner Herzog movie. Yeah, no, just ditto that. Uh, I got a recommendation. I want to be quick, but uh, uh, I just finished reading this book, uh, Garth Marenghi's Terror Tome. Ooh! And uh, if you know the show Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, you know, it's all... Uh, Focused on Garth Marenghi and his, you know, schlocky uh, show that he created. I've got a signed um, copy. Yeah, the book Teratome is focused on Garth Marenghi writes a series of three horror novellas uh, based around author Nick Steen and his uh, journeys into tales of pure horror. They're very funny. 
their great pastiche of like trashy horror novels in a way that feels very tongue in cheek um, and clever. Um, and yeah, yeah, really worth checking out. The audiobook's really great too. It's all read by Garth Marenghi in character, which is really fun. Um, yeah, definitely worth a read or listen. All right, thanks for listening. Have a good night. If you think there might be something in the mist, it's us. And we're pissed. <laughs>